سلام عليك زين الأنبياء السلام بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين وصحابته الأكرمين وتابعين لهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وعلينا معهم وفيهم برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين How's everybody doing? MashaAllah This nice comfortable new carpet combined with a lunch meal on an overcast day on a Sunday afternoon Oof those are multiple factors together that if you all want, we can just turn on our sides and take a little bit of a nap if you want. Seems like everybody's a little bit tired at the moment. But inshallah ta'ala, we can now direct our attention to what Hujjat al-Islam Imam al-Ghazali is going to say to us. Because one of the great benefits of reading this book, as we've said in many of the past retreats, there's a secret in these words that Imam al-Ghazali has put on this on these pages that we are reading. And one of the secrets relates to his enlightened state of heart when he wrote these words. And that secret remains encapsulated in those words even after his death. Imam Ghazali passed away in the year 505. So we're talking a long time ago, way over 900 years ago, about 937 years ago roughly, and we're still able to read this work. And the ironic thing is, is that you can actually understand what he's saying better than you can a modern Arabic newspaper, but that's a whole other topic. But these words are still here with us, and every time that you read them with intention, desiring closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, wanting to learn what they're saying and to put them into practice, they open up for you, and they unfold for you. And you receive from the secret of these words that emanated from that blessed heart, the upshot of which is it removes ghafla, heedlessness from you. One of the greatest benefits of Imam Ghazali's book is that it removes, you could say, strips heedlessness from you. It forces you to be wakeful and to be aware and to be conscious and to think about what is really important in life. This is what he does throughout his works on every page. These blessing, the blessings of reading these words are immense. And ideally, we would read this book word by word from the very beginning of the chapter all the way until the end, pausing, reflecting upon the meanings, thinking about how it applies to us and so forth. So forth. But if you can't have all of something, you don't leave something entirely. Yani, you try to do what you can do. What we hope is by that trying to reflect on what we can from his blessed words is that something of this reality of reflection will become a reality in our lives. So the chapter that uh, we will be focusing on in this session um, actually precedes the chapter that Ustad Amjad started to cover in the previous session. And this is where he gives an exposition and a bayan of what he calls the Majari al-Fikr. Majari al-Fikr. And um, he is, again, very precise in his word choice. And Majari, the plural of which is Majra. And that is an ism makan when you speak of it in the sense of like uh, 
an actual channel, or it's, a, it's the modern word for like circuit, uh, something that something flows in. It comes from the word jara yajri, which is to flow. And um, a majra is anything that has other things flow in it. Okay. And that here, the word fikr, of course, we're translating now as reflection. So one of the nice ways you could translate this is channels, the channels of reflection. Now, you wouldn't normally say that in English. If, I sa if, if you say someone, I'm going to talk to you about the channels of reflection, most people would be like, what are you talking about? You have to explain yourself. Uh, but that's oftentimes the case with translation. If you speak to someone about an object of reflection in English, okay, they're going to probably understand what you're saying. Um, but channels is a better way of referring to it because when you think of an object of reflection, you think of it just as that one thing in and of itself, and that's it. But the whole point here, as we will see in the second part that Osad Amjad is going to cover in the next session, is that one channel of reflection leads to the other. And so there's a place that you start, and then it channels you to what comes next. It channels you to what comes after that. It channels you to what comes after that. And ultimately, there's no end to the degrees of closeness to Allah and knowledge of Him that it channels you to. Every time that you reflect, it channels you to other, that, other, uh, that, that other channels of reflection that come after it. So this is a, an amazingly beautiful uh, word choice that Imam Ghazali uses to describe the various ways that we can reflect. Okay? And again, what he likes to do, and this is why you see the first bullet point here, is setting the frame for reflection. He always likes to set the frame. And so he says that when we talk about reflection, it could be related to a religious thing, a matter connected to the religion, or matters unconnected with it. And he says our purpose here is only to focus upon religious subjects. We're not going to reflect upon other things. Now, he doesn't mean here by this that the world in of itself is that from that matters that are not connected with religion. No, he actually goes into details about Allah's creation, which is really, really important. And so we have to be a little bit careful with some of these distinctions that we make and some of these dichotomies that we set up. We don't really, we're not really trapped in this dichotomy. Yes, there is a concept of dunya, something that's worldly. And there is a concept of worldly knowledge and religious knowledge. But we have to be careful of trapping ourselves in that dichotomy because we are not people that are at war with the world. No, we are people that live in the world, but we try to be detached from it. So at certain points, and this is why sometimes certain statements require clarification and qualification, when you speak about the lower nature of the world and its pull and what it drags you to, someone might think that, okay, I'm never going to work. I'm just going to spend my time worshiping. And that's not what that means. No, everybody has to work. Having a job is not dunya. Overly focusing on your job to the neglect of your deen is from dunya. That's blameworthy. But having a job is important. That's part of religion. And now it is possible, though, with quote-unquote worldly things that someone fails to make a righteous intention behind what they're doing so that they don't get proper reward or benefit from it. 
when it comes to things of this world, whether it be knowledge or a vocation or a job or something like that, you have to accompany an intention behind what it is that you're doing to get its benefit. Whereas the things of the religion, for its acceptance, that you have to accompany an intention along with it. But it will benefit you that just by virtue of doing it. And of course, there's degrees of relation to the purity of the intention. So this is very, very important. We want to make that distinction. And the world in and of itself, yes, that we have to recognize its dangers, and we just spoke about that in the previous session. However, um, everything that we see happening around us in the world, depending on whether it happens to us directly or indirectly, can either be a means of us drawing near to Allah or us becoming more distant from Him. And that relates to our own choices that we make in terms of how we perceive it and what we do in relation to it. You could be in the worst possible situation. And if you know how to deal with that situation, Allah gives you tawfiq and enabling grace to respond to that in a way pleasing to Him. It will be a source of upliftment for you. No one can force you to do wrong. And if you are forced and coerced, like at gunpoint to do something, you're not held accountable for it anyway. Because that's a time where the pin is lifted because you were forced to do that particular thing. No one or no thing can force you to do anything that you yourself don't want to do in reality. And everything that happens to us is an opportunity for us to draw near to Allah. Every circumstance we're in, every person that we meet. And what an empowering perspective to know that no matter what situation you're in, it could be a source of great spiritual ascension for you. But what we need to learn, and Imam al-Ghazali is a master at this, this is what we're learning throughout the Ihya, exactly how to do that. How can each situation be a means for me to draw near to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala? So he says he's going to focus now when it comes to, so he makes this distinction between things that are worldly and things that are religious. But he's going to focus on deen. And by deen, religion, what does he mean? He says, and this stems from a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi All of the religion is dealings. So by religion we mean the interaction or the dealings that take place or transpire between the servant and the Lord exalted is He. And dealings also that, we, that transpire between us and other people but for the sake of Allah. And so what he's going to do now then is break down the various categories. And so what he says is, all thoughts that can possibly occur to a servant of Allah relate either to the human being, his attributes or estates, or else to the one who is to be worshipped, his attributes or his actions. So if we're talking about deen, this is about the servant and his Lord. So we either talk about the servant or we talk about the Lord, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he says, there can be no thought that does not fall into one of these two categories. And he says that thoughts that relate to the human may be concerned either with what is beloved to the Lord or what is displeasing to him. Thoughts relating to the Lord may concern either his essence his, in his attributes, attributes in his most beautiful names, or else his actions, his kingdom, his mulk, his medakut, his supernal domain, and all that exists in the heavens, the earth, and what lies between them. 
that the scope of contemplation of matters pertaining to religions confined to the categories enumerated above will become evident to you if you consider the following simile. He's going to give us the example of someone who that has strong love for someone else. To what degree do they think about that person that they love? So this is why after going into that metaphor and that simile, that he gives us an understanding of all of the various categories or divisions of what should be reflected upon. So when it comes to the human being, what did he say? So you have the human being and Allah. When it comes to the human being, that which is pleasing to Allah and that which is displeasing to Allah. What is beloved to Allah and what is disliked by Allah. And then each one of those has two categories, the outward and the inward. So that leads to four categories when we talk about what the first thing, the first channel of reflection is reflecting upon the state of the servant before the Lord. And this necessitates that we think about four things. Acts of disobedience, acts of obedience, destructive vices and saving virtues. So the acts of disobedience and the destructive vices are what are displeasing to Allah outwardly and inwardly. And the acts of obedience and the saving virtues are what are pleasing to Allah outwardly and inwardly. And then when we talk about Allah, we talk about two more categories, his essence and his attributes. That's one category. The second category are his acts in creation and his dominion, subhanahu wa ta'ala. What he will, we will get to this before turning it over to us at the MJ for the next, next session. What he'll say is, and he'll quote a hadith that is attributed to the Prophet, is that we are told that we should not think about the essence of Allah. Rather, we should think about what he has created, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because we can't truly understand his essence. And we'll get to that. Um, but these are the breakdowns. So what does he do then for the rest of the book? He then talks about the acts of Allah. And so ultimately, when we talk about the science of Iman, call it Tawheed, Ilm al-Kanam, whatever it is that you call it, Aqidah, you are ultimately learning what it is that you should believe about Allah. Now, the reason the later scholars amongst the Ash'aris divided the categories of aqidah into three. So that which pertains to Allah, that which relates to prophecy, and that which relates to um, the hereafter. Okay? The um, ilahiyat, the nubuat, and the sam'iyat. There's a specific reason that they did that. But the wisdom behind prophet, the sending of prophets, so what it pertains to prophets, and semi'at, literally the things heard, eschatology, everything we believe is going to happen in the next world, that they have their own categories, is that these are the two greatest acts of Allah. His creating prophets and sending them to humankind, and then everything that's going to happen in the next world. So they warrant their own kind. But ultimately, both of those are acts of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what we're essentially studying in Aqidah, of course, is our Lord, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what it is that we need to believe about Him. So, when it comes to the human being, though, these are the four things that we really need to think very carefully about. And he 
mentions a point of benefit here is that um, especially when we're thinking about the things that are displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that what we need to think about is three things in relation to that. And the first one is, is that, is it really displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? Is this something that is really de detested by Allah? Which is not always obvious, but which may come to be real, to be, may come clear through careful consideration. So there's things that are absolutely clear. And then there's things that, hmm, I don't really know. And sometimes if you seek a bit of knowledge, that thing that you didn't know becomes clear. And sometimes even with years of seeking knowledge, it's still a little bit unclear. This requires reflection. And really thinking about it from all different perspectives. Asking people no of knowledge about it and trying to come to a conclusion of whether, whether that is something that is displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not. And so you and I need to think about all of the different dimensions of our life in detail. What are we doing? We need to think about our job, who we work for, what's the source of our income. We need to think about how we spend our time. We need to think about our possessions. We need to think about what it is that we're watching and we let our eyes see. We need to think about what it is that we purchase. And unfortunately, even amongst quote-unquote practicing Muslims, as we call, tend to call them, you'd be surprised how many things are openly impermissible, haram, that so many people do. And you would actually be surprised how there are so many things that people do openly that are seriously questionable and potentially dangerous. And the problem is, is that we see everybody else doing them. And, oh, he, that person knows a little bit about the religion, so it must be okay because that person does it. We need to be careful with that. Yes, that sometimes can help us if we know that person is really grounded and can be followed. But we have to apply that carefully because not everybody can be followed in every different state. There are some people that we follow in the majority of their states. There's other people we follow in some of their states. And there's other people we follow in very few of their states. We are required to have the religious maturity so that we can discriminate when do we take from who and how and to what extent. That's something that you and I have to know. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, what, what an example, an, an one of the classic examples of this is movies. People just, just, people now just watch movies day in, day out. Religious people, people that you know, as if it's no thing. And some of the stuff that are, appears in that movie that is clearly haram, right? And looking at it is haram, unquestionably. There's no doubt about that. And I'm not saying, I'm not making a blanket statement that all movies are haram. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just, let's keep it real. That the vast majority of people that you know that are practicing their deen watch movies. And oftentimes there's <coughs> scenes in those movies that should not be seen. Right? There's things that happen in that that are clearly haram. And the general rule is, if it's haram to do, it's haram to see. Unless you unintentionally see it and then deny it in your heart. So we have to be very careful with this. 
And there's a number of other examples as well. Uh, the, the, you know, just a, a lot of investments that people do. Everybody else is doing it. And, you know, a lot of people just invest their money in places, never thinking twice about what they're investing in. And is this even permissible to do? And have their places in the stock market and their 401ks and other types of investments, never thinking, like, is this something that is possible? So many different types of insurance that people get, never thinking. Right, is there a way around this? Can I do this? Can I not do it? Student loans are <coughs> a se serious problem. Student loans are a problem. And every so someone does it, everyone else does it, everyone thinks it's okay. And it, it's not that easy with the student loan. And um, you know, you, we have to really talk about these things. And I don't mean to make everybody panic. My point is to point to a few of the things, and there's actually quite a few more. When you really start reflecting upon this, are these things really permissible or not? And how do we understand them? And there's a difference between already have been doing something for 10 or 20 years and we got to get out of it now than in between someone who now is trying to plan for the future. Those are two very different things. And from the blessing of Allah is that, 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 that yes, sometimes um, you, you, you give people practical ways to get out of things in the long term such that they, it would be a greater harm in the short term, but ideally they shouldn't be in that position in the first place. But that's a very different state to have been in as opposed to someone who's trying to be more scrupulous and that to be cautious from the beginning. And um, so to really think about this, that is this really detested to al by a law, which is not always obvious, but which may come to be come clear through careful consideration. And then secondly, if it is detested to Allah, one must study what are the means of safeguarding oneself from it. So there's a beautiful statement of Sidi Ahmad Zarouk. He said, if you want to know who the righteous are in any society, look at the common faults of that society and to see if they have them. So all different peoples, all different societies have, there's, there's common traits that they're all exposed to. And so that if you if you know that like same so there's one people that they're, those people are just known for backbiting. You find the people who are not backbiting; those are likely likely to be the righteous. So you and I have to know the society in which we live. We have to know what it means to have deen in the societies in which we live, and how can we get out of these? How can we get around home mortgages? How can we get around loans? to go to school? How can we get around a lot of these issues where that you have internet at home but at the same time you don't open up the door for your children to watch haram and just to give them a device that they just do whatever they want with it and you have now facilitated for them falling into haram and are getting bad deeds in your scrolls because of what you've done and so forth and so on. There's many things like this but you and I have to think about these things. How can we safeguard ourselves from the harms of our time without falling into despair because there's so many in our time. Doing the best we can and asking Allah Ta'ala to forgive us for where we fall short. And then, if one is currently given to that thing and is so obliged to give it up, this is the third thing, whether one will be exposed to it in the future and consequently must take precautions against it or whether one has committed that thing in some situation in the past and hence is obliged to make amends for it. Okay? So, 
if someone's doing something that they've realized, my God, I shouldn't be doing this, how to get out of that situation. Because sometimes these situations get very complex, especially if they're with other people. So the, the, the solution is not always like, okay, I'm just going to break this relationship. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it would lead to a greater harm. So what do you do? You have to be very careful. And this is where wisdom comes in. This is where the lesser of two evils comes in. And again, I remember Shekhamza told this beautiful story one time and about this lady who was working as a flight attendant and she was working in business class and if there was a non-Muslim there who ordered an alcoholic beverage, she's a flight attendant, even though it's a Muslim plane, why is there alcoholic beverage? I don't know, but she would serve it to them. And so Shekhamza brought this up to her as just to, to start a conversation with her and that she looked at him like in a very broken way. She said, I know. I shouldn't be doing this. And she said, whenever I do it, I always serve with my left hand instead of the right hand, which is used for noble things. She said, in Ramadan, I ask other people to do it. In other words, that doesn't make it right, but that brokenness and that recognition that the ideal is not to be in that position where you're doing that, that follows by that gesture, that will hope in sh that we have hope in Allah, because we're all in these situations where just because you can't completely leave something, do the very best you can to minimize the harm of a given situation. And we're much closer to the mercy of Allah Ta'ala if that's our state than if we just obstinately just, oh, who cares? I'm just going to do it. Right. No, just even if we're falling short, recognize that you're falling short. And you don't know. And that's why they mention in the stories of Toba and of repentance where there was two people, two brothers, and they lived in the same house, one on the top floor and the other on the bottom floor. And one of them was a horrible person and never did anything good in his life ever. And the other person who was on the top floor was a very good person and never did anything wrong his entire life. And just one day, the person on the bottom floor said, you know, maybe I should go see what my brother's doing. Maybe I can get myself together. And the person on the top floor said, you know, I've been doing good for so long. Maybe I'm just going to go just see what my brother downstairs is doing. And so one of them goes upstairs, then one goes downstairs, right? The one coming down falls down and dies. And that's how his life ends. He'd been doing good his whole life, and then he just wanted to just kind of see what's out there. Whereas the other one is that he'd done nothing wrong, nothing good in his life, and because of that intention of just wanting to get himself together. And they just mentioned this in relation to the importance of intention, and yes, the danger, but also the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and, and just inclining towards him in our heart to wa ta'ala. So he mentions that, and this is this is a very important type of reflection. Because the greatest dhikr of all is to understand the halal and the haram in the moment and to do what is right. That's the greatest dhikr of all. And this is why the people of knowledge are called Ahl dhikr, fas'alu ahl dhikri. Ask the people of remembrance, i.e., the people of knowledge, in kuntum la ta'alamun, if indeed you do not know. 
But this is why it's so important that we develop learning institutions, religious learning institutions, and that we dedicate our own children and we support other people learning so that we can have people that grow up in these societies, know the dangers, can articulate them to our people, and learn the sacred law in depth and spend years upon years studying what the past ulama have said, understanding their time so that they can apply it in their time and to know how to put everything in its proper place. And it gets very detailed. And when you study basic manuals, that's just your, that's the very, very tip of the iceberg. Those are there to facilitate a basic level of learning, but to really become adept in answering people's questions and to teach people how to live lives that are upright and to help people get out of problems that they have got themselves in and how to steer people away from problems that they might fall into. This requires a lot of skill. This requires a lot of knowledge, an abundant amount of knowledge, an abundant amount of wisdom. And is of the utmost. It's within reach if you and I take it seriously. But if our only motivation is how much our children are going to earn when they graduate from college and the type of job that they're going to get and all these other types of things, when are we going to have people, students that dedicate themselves to learning? And they can actually help people with what was mentioned. This is one of the most important things of all. So let's look now at these four categories. So there's four things. We have to think very deeply about the acts of disobedience. And what Imam Ghazali says is he recommends, he, pres recommends this, he prescribes this on a daily basis, every morning. And you will find that this is very similar to what he mentions in book number 37, or excuse me, book number 38, which is the book of Muhasaba and Muraqaba, um, the book on taking oneself to account and vigilance. And so we should really think deeply, first and foremost, about our heart and the seven members of our body. And thinking about all of the different ways that we go against the sacred law with every single one of our limbs. And so this is a type of reflection. You actually reflect upon, what do I do with my eyes? What do I let them see? What do I do with my ears? What do I let them hear? What do I do with my tongue? What do I let it say? You just reflect. And this is why we need to learn constantly. Because if you don't know something's wrong, you're not going to know that it's wrong. That's why knowledge precedes this stage. You have to know that there's prohibitions of the tongue. You have to know that there's prohibitions of things that you can see. And you go limb by limb, my hands, my belly, my private parts, my, f my feet, limb by limb, limb by limb. And you think about the various things that you've done in the past or that you can repent from or that you can protect yourself from in the future. And you go through what he mentioned there. And if, you, if, you, if, if there's something that you don't know in reflecting upon this, oh, I said that, is it permissible to say that? You ask. Oh, I did this. Is it permissible to do that? You ask. And this is what's so important. We should be asking questions regularly. We should be having classes regularly so that we can ask our questions. 
And again, is that if we care about our religious health, this will be an ongoing process. Think about how hard it is to be physically healthy in our time. Just think how hard it is. Because the default is the vast majority of people, especially in the United States of America, are not healthy. It's a very serious problem. And so if you just live normal and do what normal people do, the default is you're not going to be too healthy. Like if you do not go out of your way and really save your money and spend a lot of it on buying good food, the default is you're not going to be eating good food. And there'll be a range of like okay to absolutely terrible and somewhere in between. This is, if that's the case with our physical health, it's even more so with our spiritual health. In other words, we have to take this seriously and to that be inquisitive and to think. Of, and what you'll think, what you'll find is when you spend that time reflecting, questions will arise that then you need to ask. And then you'll get your answers and you'll be able to put it into practice and so forth and so on. So this is what he recommends. And he gives the example of the tongue. We're not going to go into that. But all the different things that the tongue can say. And all the different things that can go wrong. And um, one way to help yourself in this, I highly recommend that everybody has a copy of The Reliance of the Traveler, uh, translated by Sheikh Noor. And there's a lot of beautiful addendums to that, that he adds uh, other sections that are of great benefit. So he, he has this beautiful section where he lists the prohibitions of the tongue. So you can just go through one by one to help you. He lists the traits of the heart. And you can go through those one by one. So this is what he says. First with our limbs. And then, so the acts of disobedience. And then the acts of obedience. And one should first examine how he performs those acts of worship prescribed for him as obligatory. And how to keep them free of shortcomings or defects. Or how to make amends for defects by means of abundant supererogatory acts. Okay, and so we should think about, um, most importantly, the obligations. The obligations. To what degree do we fulfill the obligations? What are our daily obligations? We should be aware of those. This doesn't just mean prayer. Maybe our parents are in need of us taking care of them, so it includes them. Maybe it means earning a livelihood, so that's part of it. Maybe me and so forth and so on. What are our daily obligations, the things that we absolutely must do? And we have to recognize all of that is worship. And so when we spend the time during the day to do those things, you are worshiping a lot and you're getting reward. And if you make the intention to fill an obligation, you're getting the reward for an obligation. And sometimes those obligations are difficult. Taking care of young children. Sometimes taking care of older people is very difficult. Earning a livelihood is not something that is easy. Helping someone that's in need, and so forth and so on. So thinking very deeply about that, and our prayers specifically, we should think about the day ahead. Am I go where am I going to be when it comes time for prayer? We should all know in general when the prayer times come in. And we know that, okay, if I have a short little window, and am I going to choose to do this or am I going to pray? We should ideally pray as soon as possible once the prayer time comes in. Unless there's some type of scheduled delay. 
Okay, so if like we know that, for instance, you have a class and you're the the school has you praying a little bit later. Okay, you pray when the school prays. That's different. But the first available time you should pray. And if you have to wait a little But to get prayer and congregation, that's perfectly fine. But plan that out, and you'll ben benefit immensely from that. When you spend that, it takes what? How long? 30 seconds to 45 seconds? Or if you're going to be traveling, okay, I have to leave at this time. That means that I have to pray at this time. That means I need to make sure to have wudu at this time, because it, and you plan it out. It will help you perform those obligations a lot better. And then all of the other acts of obedience that someone can do with the limbs with the eye with the ears just as you think about what you shouldn't do or can't do you think about what you should do and then the other two categories relate to the heart and he goes into quite a bit of detail but then he makes it easier for us and he summarizes it by saying that if you focus on these things it will be much easier for you to get rid of everything else. Okay. And that he says when it, when it comes to the heart, the destructive vices of the heart, he says it suffices you to focus on ten of them. Because if you can rid yourself of these ten, then you'll be able to rid yourself of all of the others. And the first is bukhul, miserliness, kibur, arrogance, ijab, self-conceit, riya, ostentation, hasad, envy, shiddat al-ghadab, intense anger, sharah al-ta'am, uncontrollable eating, sharah al-wiqa', that over-focus on uh, relations, hubb al-mal, uh, love of wealth, wa hubb al-jah, love of status. So we have to spend time, each one of those. Bukhul, am I a miserly person? Are there times that I could have given, but I didn't give? How do I feel when I give my zakat out? Because that's the worst type of miserliness, is that you don't even want to give your zakat out. It's only 2.5% of your wealth that's for money. That's the worst type. of. So if we have any like 
hesitation to give out zakat. That's a problem that needs to be dealt with. But then there's degrees of miserliness after that, reflecting upon that, kibr, arrogance. Are there times where I'm arrogant? And think about how am I around people that don't have like I have, people that are of lesser stature than I am, and so forth and so on. How do we act? We should think about this. So we go through each one of these, and we think about that particular disease of the heart, that destructive vice, and how we are. Are we putting it into practice? Are we, uh, are we, have we been able to avoid that or not? He says then there's ten saving virtues that if we focus on those ten, then it will be easy for us to acquire all of the others. And the first is that we have remorse for sins that we've committed. Second, patience in times of tribulation. Third, being content with the divine decree. Being thankful for, for his blessings. That five, that having both fear and hope be balanced. A balanced manifestation of fear and hope. Six, detachment of the world. Seven, sincerity in our acts. Eight, having good character with creation. Nine, having love of Allah. And ten, khushur, having reverential awe for him. Each one of those that you start to think. So you don't have to do these all in one day, but this is giving you now work for a lifetime. Work for a lifetime. And each one, if you just, you go through just one day, choose one of them and just reflect upon and the noob. So you're going to say, I'm going to take two minutes just to reflect upon the remorse that I should have for sins that I commit. And you just reflect on that and spend time with that. And then you move to the next one. And then you move to the next one. And then he has a section where different people are susceptible to different types of things and committing different types of wrongs depending upon their age, depending upon their position in society, depending upon where it is that they live. All of these different considerations, different people are exposed to different things. And we have to be aware of that. Now, one of the things that he does, he says that, you know, if we want to speak about a comprehensive way of doing all of this, he said, read the Qur'an with reflection. When you read the Qur'an with reflection, all of these different categories you will come across. Things that we should avoid, things that we should do. Traits of heart that we should have, traits of heart that we should avoid. Reflecting upon the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because this is, that he says, is that the Qur'an that is jama, it is comprehensive, includes all of the different stations and all of the different states. And it is a healing for all of the worlds. And so he goes into great detail and then he says, a servant should repeat a verse that he needs, that, 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 uh, that, that he needs to reflect upon time and time again, even up to 100 times. And he said to recite one verse with reflection and understanding is better than an entire recitation of the Qur'an without reflection and understanding. 
And I remember um, one of my teachers in Mauritania, Murab Ahmafal, he said this one time, Reflecting deeply upon one verse of the Quran is better than finishing the Quran many times. And we should have times where we just read through, but then we should have times that we reflect. And you can do this even with the access of a good translation of its meanings, like Professor Abdul Halim's or the Clear Quran by Dr. Mustafa Al-Khattab, that can that are um, the much closer. Uh, there are much better translations than many of the others, and they assist in this reflection process. And he says, and likewise, reading the hadith of our Prophet ﷺ, everybody should have a translation of Riyad al-Salihin, the gardens of the righteous in their house, and read from it, or the 40 hadith of Imam Nawi, or the uh, translation of Mishkat al-Masabih, or Al-Adab al-Mufrad. Those three books in particular are books that we should read regularly. And it's a good habit to get into to read them regularly with our children. After prayer, just read a hadith or two hadith or three hadith. But we should start with a book like Riyadh al-Salihin. And the translations uh, of Riyadh al-Salihin, the translation, is available. And then on certain hadith, you don't have to read a lot. But sometimes when you only read three or four hadith, it allows you actually to reflect upon them more. Because we all have time. But it might just be in that walk from the car to the workplace or whatever. We have five minutes between an, uh, appointments or something. And you can actually spend that reflecting on that hadith in detail and trying to understand the meaning, trying to apply it to yourself and so forth and so on. And amazing doors open up when we do this. So um, so he says here is that, that this is the, the way of the people of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is how they do this. And one of the things that he says here is that th this, is, this is where we begin. Because when we begin here with this stage of how we understand our relationship with Allah, what this leads is to the next stage. And so he mentions this, is that this is the starting point. And we should know that the, the beginner should begin here because this is what's so important. It's the building block and the foundation for what comes after. Because if we're going to get into the higher dimensions of reflection, if we're going to experience the fruits of the higher dimensions of reflection, this has to be in place first. He said, but someone should know that if this is the only thing over the course of their lifetime that they spend doing, he said then that they've actually fallen short. He said this is like someone who that is preparing to get married and they prepare and they prepare and they prepare and they prepare for years and years and years and they actually never get married. And so the whole purpose of this is for you to rid yourself of what is blocking you from receiving the blessings of the higher degrees of reflection. To be the way that you should be. And He'll insert these beautiful statements here, like that And I'm just reading and translating this. I don't know what this means. I'm hoping that Allah will bless us to know what this means one day. He says, Annihilating yourself in the one, the truth, is the utmost end desire of those who are seeking closeness to Allah. 
And the highest degree of bliss that the highest ex saints experience. I believe that. Imam Ghazali says that. Our Imams say that. I believe that. Now, what is its reality? I don't know. I hope that we can at least believe in it as it's supposed to be believed in and do what we can and at least die trying. And Allah's kareem. Allah's kareem. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we know this is true. And we have to do our part. And the first stage is takhalli. We rid ourselves of what is displeasing to Allah. So that we can move to the next channel of reflection. So this is what relates to the servant. Those four categories. Reflecting on those four categories in the way that was mentioned. And then when it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we said there were how many categories? Again, two. The first is that which relates to his reflecting upon his essence and his attributes. And there's a hadith that states, Reflect upon the creation of Allah. Do not reflect upon the essence of Allah. And so, again, as we've said before, but just so that we can be clear on this particular issue, we can't even fully understand matter. Okay, so no matter how much you reflected upon matter, what is the true nature of matter? What is matter? What is the true nature of matter? Like, okay, okay I'm, I'm not talking about the fact that I have a hand here right in front of me, but like, what does the hand consist of? Okay, it depends on how deep you want to go. And then when you get to the deeper levels, like, what is it? In some ways, it is kind of mysterious. If that's the case with matter, then what about understanding the relationship of the creation to Allah? Because this is one of the things that he says here. All that you can, there's only, he says, the very little that the ulama have explicitly said, and he mentions some of these things, but he says, Allah is not inside of his creation, nor is he outside of it. He's not connected to it, that, and he's not that disconnected from it. And that's all we can do with theology. Understanding the relationship, that's not done with the aqad, that's done with the qalb, the heart. And that's what the arifin, the knowers of Allah, experience. So theology, the beauty of our theology is the clarity that we have. We know the limits of where you can get with discursive or speculative theology. And then it's about knowing Allah with your heart. That type of theology is important because the intellect gets you to the door, but it's through the heart that we know Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we don't reflect upon the essence of Allah or the true nature of his attributes. Now, when it comes to understanding the 99 names of Allah, that it's okay to reflect upon the manifestations in creation and to understand how they point to his attributes. So you see mercy in creation, you know that Allah Ta'ala is the all merciful. You see that generosity and creation of Allah Ta'ala is the all-generous, and so forth and so on. Um, yeah, but the true nature of His attributes, we, we, we only will have a limited amount that we'll ever truly know about that from what Allah Ta'ala unveils to the individual at the level of His heart. And 
that true knowledge of his essence or attributes is not, we're not able to do that. But even what Allah permits us to know is great. So when we talk about knowledge of Allah, what he permits us to know, that's, there's nothing greater than for us to know that. So then the second category was, then what? Allah's af'al, his acts in creation and everything that he brought into existence. And this is where, as Sidi Amjad already had mentioned, is that he gives us this um, metaphor of looking at the sun. And so everything that he creates points to his majesty, his greatness, subhanahu wa ta'ala, his knowledge, his wisdom. And so, فَيَنظُرْ إِلَى صِفَاتِ مَنْ آثَارِ صِفَاتِهِ So we gaze at his traits through the traces of his traits, i.e. what he creates. فَإِنَّ لَا نُطِيقَ نَظِرَ صِفَاتِهِ Because we're not able to that gaze upon that his traits. كَمَا أَنَّ لَا نُطِيقَ نَظِرَ الشَّمْسِ Just as we're not able to look directly into the sun. But we can look at the earth and what the sun has shown upon and we can see those various things. Without light we wouldn't be able to do that. But we can't look directly at the sun. So that by looking at what Allah Ta'ala has created in His acts in creation, created things, this is how we come to have a knowledge uh, of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala in a way, in, in a way that he's permitted us to do so, to Ta'ala, and this is what Ustad Amjad will further his discussion on: is that what else we can reflect upon from what Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has created? May Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq and open up the doors of understanding for all of us. Fi khairun wa fa'afiyah wa sallallahu I apologize, we didn't leave any time for Q and A, but there's a whole session of Q and A uh, after the final session. So just save your questions for that session, inshallah. Inshallah, everyone, we have a 15-minute break before the last session.